Hi, this is Cook Kriego for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Thanks for tuning in. This is another little dialogue tape. And what I wanted to talk about uh, this morning, you can probably hear we're already taking refuge uh, from the heat. It's only April the 27th. We're at altitude, 1420 meters up here around Heartbreak uh, Meadow, doing um, climate crisis field work and a lot of uh, music, circle in the square, compositional work. And um, I can never quite remember being here at this stream, at this location. Uh, this time of year. It's just snow-free today. So we can hear the sound of the rushing water. The stream is swollen with snow melt. It didn't freeze uh, here and quite a bit above here. Probably another six or seven hundred meters all last night. So that's what you want to watch when you're up here, the diurnal uh, cycle, the freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw. And if it doesn't freeze at night in the mountains, that's at any time of year uh, potentially a bad uh, sign, a warning signal. So I wanted to take a break from all the music and step back from it a little bit and get out of all the intense dry and heat-making photographs and come down to the stream, a real privilege, to reflect a little bit on climate crisis, truth and function, and ethics. I'm seated right across, it's only about uh, three meters away, a uh, viscous um, current that's just beginning to leap out, and on the other side it's more shaded, and there's about uh, almost a half a meter of snow. And this is real riparian. There's uh, alder, there's uh, dogwood, and all of these trees right on the water are having a hard time. So the thresholds which we cross with a hotter and drier climate are in no way self-evident. But the best way to study it, in my view, is to fully uh, be a part of the circle of life up here and to watch it naturally day in, day out during the winter, during the uh, hot months as well and uh, document with photos, audio recordings to get a sense of what's going on. But just the uh, well-known, of course, is that um, the steep decline if not collapse of the great white bark pine. But they're a full 
600 meters above this altitude where there's still about a meter, meter and a half of snow. That's where they, as I say, click in, begin. Here, the dominant pine of the mixed conifer forest is ponderosa pine. Well, it's well known that they're having a hard time, in my view, primarily because of a hotter, drier climate. But at this altitude, one of the real heartbreaks, one of the reasons this place is called Heartbreak Meadow, not just because it's heartbreakingly beautiful, but because of what's happening right before our eyes, is the uh, um, quaking aspen, the most common species in North America. Well, they're in a massive dieback. And uh, each year with my uh, annual circumambulation of the Wallawas, uh, the past four years I've been studying that as closely as possible. So decline, the evidence of climate crisis, the higher you go, uh, becomes more and more pronounced. It's like going to the North Pole. So climate crisis, truth and function, and ethics. Or we could just as well call it right action. Let's begin with that one miniature of the hundred sayings in prose. People have been asking us about that, and hopefully it's going to be coming out as a black and white uh, photography uh, uh, text uh, book um, this coming autumn, 2018. So we're doing our best. Send this encouragement. But this is, uh, uh, for me personally, a key uh, miniature. Right action in the face of runaway climate change. So, as always, that's a kind of question. So the first thing one has to do in the dialogue circle is to step back and ask, is that really true? And what does it mean? So we have two different problems. Right action, what is that? Without being academic, this is all hands on deck. This determines our behavior, not tomorrow, but right here, right now. So it's not uh, just an intellectual exercise. So right action, we're asking, what is that what right action? And then climate change or crisis, runaway is the key word. Well, depending on how much we've studied the uh, science of climate crisis, uh, most of us are aware that there are certain uh, tipping points, that it's not just a question of gradual change. Um, like you see the snow decline. It doesn't decline all at once, right? It's a very gradual, slow process. And it has a rhythm to it. Now that's a gradual process. And it's very difficult to have a, a proper climatological sense of that rhythm. Um, I can say 
that here, because there's no tradition in living in the Alpine, um, in the Alps there is, but here people uh, are by and large, not because they want to be, uh, but are ignorant of life uh, at this altitude going higher. Very few people come here, and when they do, it's just during the, the warmer, snow-free months, and it's either to recreate or to uh, uh, use the land uh, for so-called resources, either logging, grazing, or whatnot. But there's very little uh, um, deep cultural knowledge about um, this uh, landscape. In the Alps, it's very different. So when you talk to people in the Alps, they will have a sense of what um, is, well, just to use a simple word, normal. They'll say, well, this has never avalanched here before. And they'll say it with great authority. And they're talking about 500 to 1,000 years. But here, um, uh, there's no one here <laughs> within a radius of uh, a week's journey on foot that would have any idea when this very spot where we're sitting under some beautiful uh, balsam uh, cottonwoods, Populus carpa, the ones that have the really remarkable um, pencil-sharp centimeter-and-a-half uh, buds that are nowhere near bud bursts, but they have that balsam. You have to use it very carefully. It's very strong. It's kind of a spring tonic under the tongue. Well, there's no one around here that would have any idea. So there's no authority. There's no, I mean, authority in the sense of of loving knowledge. So that has to do at least a little bit that people are unaware of the crisis that's actually unfolding up here. So right action in the face of runaway climate change. So runaway is not that linear change. It tends to uh, be either an acceleration of an acceleration, and it also happens at unexpected uh, so-called tipping points. Like you can be in a canoe and totally dry, and if you lean a little bit too much to one side, then all of a sudden you take on enough water to sink the vessel. Or you, when you turn on the standard um, North American light, you'll move the switch up and up and up and nothing happens, and all of a sudden, phew, it flips and the light is on or off. Well, that's a nonlinear uh, transition. Well, many climate uh, um, change variables work in that pattern of movement. Nonlinear. chaotic, but very difficult to predict when you cross these thresholds. Well, <clears throat> each plant species in each community has uh, these tipping points. So do we. And I'm sure that we've crossed very many of them. But uh, uh, how, how hot does Phoenix have to get, for example, down there south of here? Um, 
how many days in high summer in the 40 and above degrees Celsius do you have to have before it becomes, even with air conditioning, uninhabitable? It's already so hot in the summer that airplanes can't get enough lift to take off frequently, and the tires are actually sinking into the burning hot tire mat. Well, that depends <laughs> on how tolerant the people are. If they're just staying indoors. But at a certain point, there will be a tipping point. And evidently, species like whitebark pine and aspen have already crossed that tipping point. And I'm sure that you've read and heard there are uh, insects and uh, rust and all kinds of things affecting different tree species. But in my view, the general stressor is this hotter, drier climate. If you're up here on a day like today, you actually experience it on your own physical instrument. How hot and dry it is. It's only the end of April. But moving along, right action in the face of runaway climate change. So we're saying, yes, runaway climate change is already happening. And we can discuss that in the dialogue circle. There are different points of view. But in our view, it already is. And snow line is one of the things that's in runaway. We're just at the very beginning of rising elevation of what's called the snow line. It's a hypothetical red line you draw around the simplified cone of a mountain in altitude, above which it snows, below which it rains. Well, what we're listening to is sound of the fast-flowing stream is flowing with about a 35-40% increase just in round numbers from three days ago. And that's because of the lack of diurnal freezing. And it's pulsing and purifying itself. It's still running clear, but much carrying much more sediment than just 48 hours ago. So that rising snow line, well, I tell people, as a rule of thumb, it's going up, no pun intended, a thumb with two centimeters a day. Tendency greatly accelerating. So that is the idea of a runaway, an acceleration of an acceleration to the point of becoming exponential. And once that happens, you're on your way to some sort of a collapse. That's when the graph line makes it sweep until it becomes vertical. And by that point, it's unsustainable. All runaways like that in nature will quickly uh, crash. So what does that mean? Well, these mountains are losing their snowpack. And with these, it's already down 50% in the past uh, 50, 60, 70 years. 
So snow season begins much later, a good two to three weeks, and ends earlier, a good two to three weeks. Just like uh, hurricane season is now a full six months in a place like uh, Louisiana and New Orleans. And that heat season of, uh, in Fahrenheit, 120 degrees, those temperatures where human beings can't really survive. Well, <clears throat> right action, so that's the ethical component. Well, right action, in our view, follows the ethical principle. I think it's vitally important to be very simple, pure, direct, and fierce. Perhaps not in that order with our thinking about ethics. It is not complicated intellectually. What's hard is actually doing the right thing. So our ethical principle following, uh, it's not uh, uh, Hippocrates, but uh, you know the Hippocratic Oath, it's, it predates that by at least uh, one or two or perhaps even three millennia coming from the Jains in India of taking non-violence, ahimsa, as your primary principle. So, prima non nocere, first do no harm. So, one considers basically a wider circle around all our actions, everything we think, say, and do resonates out into wider circles that affect others in that uh, cascading um, circle of life and community. What I do up here at this stream is going to affect people downstream. So that's it for ethics, but do it. <laughs> that's the beauty of nonviolence. It is that once you get that clear, it's very difficult in terms of awareness to do what I call playing false, that you beat around the bush and don't do the, the right thing because you want to study it or figure it out. It's not, uh, it's not difficult to figure out. Why we don't do the right thing isn't difficult to figure out either, but we'll come back to that. So the saying, right action in the face of runaway climate change. So we're asking that as a question in the dialogue circle. And all that means is that all the assumptions and all the meaning we're trying to bring out and make clear. And once that is clear, it's like this it brings together all the energy of the flow. We're no longer fighting against each other and our, ourselves. And I'm asking myself these questions too. Am I doing the right? I don't know. I'm up here doing a lot of music, which I love to do. But is that the right thing? So every, every composition that I compose takes away precious energy and time and resources 
from doing uh, climate crisis photography or making a tape like this or any number of things. So I think it's always good to step back periodically and look at it alone and together in dialogue. And we still have the privilege, and it is indeed a great privilege, to have the space, the place, and the freedom to do that. There are at least two billion brothers and sisters in the human circle of the planet that do not have that privilege, that are already on the very sharp edge of uh, climate uh, crisis. Not enough water, and any number of things. Or all the devastation and wars that the West has wrecked upon the hydrocarbon-rich areas of the world, especially the Middle East. So clarity of thinking, that's what these miniatures are about, to get crystal clear like this water. And it's not a one-shot deal. It's an ongoing process, movement is a better word, of purification. That's the truth and function part, at all levels of time and space. Truth and function, it's like a wheel, a cycle that's turning and eternally self-correcting, self-purifying. It's the very essence of this water. So that miniature goes on, right action in the face of runaway climate change. And then it's rhetorical, it says something outrageous. It says, um, the root cause of climate change is not carbon. Hmm, that's obviously not true, but we're saying that for a reason. The root cause of climate change is not carbon. It is the destructive nature of thought and thinking itself. I wrongly divide myself from the world. That's the most important bit. I wrongly divide myself from the world. I wrongly divide myself from this little river. From where it comes from, where it's flowing to. I wrongly divide myself from the world. So we're asking, is that true? Now why would you be so stupid? To, wrong, to do something wrong, and then that is when truth and function, self-correction, breaks down when you persist in the false. And that has become, I think, one of the profound meanings of reconnecting with Mother Earth and wilderness is to step back from what I call the two great circles, the circle of nature and the circle of culture. So you say, I'm out of here for a while. 
and head to the hills. If even just for a day, just with a backpack, no devices, enough food, means of making a fire, and just ponder about what's going on. Well, that's the beginning of truth and function, of self-correction, this eternal wheel which purifies thought and thinking in our whole being of all the conflict and contradictions and waste. So the root cause of climate crisis isn't carbon. It's the destructive nature of thought itself. I wrongly divide myself from the world, and then it goes on. Everything other, I either ignore, or fear, or seek to control, or destroy. There are many um, new awarenesses that we could draw like circles that have been unfolding one after the other in the past decade that all concern themselves with violence and abuse. So if we are seriously uh, uh, committed to nonviolence, we look at all of those. So if we look at uh, violence against women, now what is the difference between violence against women and violence against the earth? Are they independent of each other? In other words, could you resolve one without resolving the other? We're just thinking out loud. Obviously, you can correct and lessen the abuse, and that should be done instantly in all cases. But the root formative cause of that violence isn't just the relationship between genders. That's where we would, on the long term, go astray, in my view. The root cause of the violence is in something our ignorance of this destructive nature of thought itself. So there's the key word, ignorance. I wrongly divide myself from the world. Everything other, we're not talking about just other in the obvious sense of gender or race or nationality. We're talking about me in this river, this tree, everything other. What is, where am I at home? In another similar miniature on racism, I use that image. The geometry of life is not two guns pointed at each other. It's a circle. We're all brothers and sisters, you and I. The rock, the river, the tree, the sky.
and this violence ends only with a revolution of consciousness. That's the widest possible circle, right? So we're saying consciousness is not just similar to this river, it's in a mysterious way one, identical. That if we run this river higher and higher, eventually we'll get to some sort of pristine source. And if we go the other way around, 40 kilometers lower, we'll smack right into a reservoir in a dam with all the contaminant uh, pollution and lack of that self-purification. That stops this movement of self-purification dead in its track. But if we run up higher, we're getting closer to a source. Well, something happens like that in consciousness once we become aware of the movements of inappropriate division in things like um, what's keeping us frequently from doing the right thing, holding on to the past, And then it becomes obvious, why do we hold on the past? Well, there are many, and I'm speaking to myself too, comforting things that we have uh, set up, both individually and collectively, that uh, make uh, life physically comfortable, or livable, or um, enjoyable, or um, uh, even addictive. And we're not going to question those <laughs> And uh, when those things are threatened, that's when you get the limited sense of other, the nationality or the strange religion or strange language or brown-skinned people and all of that, uh, uh, which should be obvious. But um, when resources become short and the situation becomes tense, then things that were considered just fine all of a sudden are no longer fine. And it all comes down to my own individual security or my nation or culture's security. So we put up walls or dams. So right action, climate crisis, truth and function. Well, let's end with one thought. Ethics is not difficult to understand. It's first do no harm. That's the only ethical principle I insist that we need. It's entirely negation of taking away. So we don't need any organized religion, including Buddhism, whatsoever to be to our core ethical human beings. At the same time, ethics is always difficult. And that's why we need it. Because it's telling us that word is a little bit too in academic imperative, that we must do something, right? 
we must act. And it's telling us that we must do something, like abolish slavery. We'll study the great transcendentalist traditions. They struggled and struggled and struggled with that question. And to us it seems obvious what the right thing to do is. And it was in a way obvious to them too. But they were stuck in the habitual holding on to the past mode. That what a thought goes into runaway, well what's going to happen if I do that? If there are no longer any slaves? Half the country is going to economically collapse. So that's how right action, ahimsa, nonviolence, becomes corrupted. And that's when, like the flow of this river hitting a dam, it's blocked in truth and function, which is always a movement. It's never a static thing. You never just, okay, I'm finished with truth. and It's an ongoing thing. So that is evidently why we don't, so just like why we don't do the right thing. Simply holding on to the path. Well, in a dialogue circle, that's the beauty of it. The primary thing we look at is holding. Holding on to anything. That's why it's imperative to use that word again that we check um, organized religious beliefs at the door. You can't possibly have a dialogue. What is that word, ecumenical? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's well intended. But would we take that? No. That's completely predictable what that's going to become. Does that real non... No, that is not real nonviolence. So why don't we want to see that? Because it's very difficult. That's why I don't endorse uh, the Pope and Catholicism. There are many scientists now who have bought into that. That, uh, well, if it's such a crisis we need, uh, the Pope can influence a billion people, right? And I always say, if we need the Pope for climate crisis, we're already burning in hell. Catholicism, from the point of view of this dialogue sitting here, and from what I've experienced personally in the Alps, is nothing but the colonization of the spirit. It's one of the most insidious, violent forms of metaphysics that's ever walked the earth. So we need something different. Ethics. It's always hard. It will forever always be hard. Because it's always about dying to something, giving something up. And uh, we'll be liberated after we give it up. Like giving up drinking or smoking or drugs or whatever kind of physical abuse.
we throw at ourselves. But that's only after the purification. Like once we get rid of hydrocarbons, then we'll see. So, all we need to do is come to the high country and meditate on this, and I think that it will become clear. So, right action, nonviolence, climate crisis, truth and function and ethics. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. This is Cliff signing off for the picture-poems.com website and the circle in the square. Check that out, our little infomercial, until that book comes out. To see the 100 miniatures is a slideshow. There's still 177 of them, so they got to be called back. And uh, all black and white photography, all little sayings and prose. And they're meant to be little sutras, little crystals of an idea, a way of looking. One image, one idea, one new way of looking. And it's at picture-poems.com slash 100. And it plays at random as a slideshow. And uh, I do them as little presentations for people. And it's always interesting what's going to be the first one that comes up. It's usually the most difficult. But they're meant to be learned uh, by heart and to be uh, gone into very uh, uh, seriously. But check that out. Picture-poems.com slash 100. Okay, this is Cliff. Ciao for now.